Hello and welcome to The Point of Everything. Today on the show is Rich Gilligan, a photographer from Dublin who has shot the likes of Timothy Chalamet, author Elizabeth Strout and Killian Murphy, among so many others. He's also taken portraits of numerous Irish acts, including Conor O'Brien of Villagers, dating back to their first album, Becoming a Jackal, Circa Richardson, Damien Dempsey and Pillow Queens. Rich has worked on other voices for years and curated and edited a photo book with them that was released in 2021 to mark the festival's 20th anniversary. The book is called Collapsing Distance and you can get it at othervoices.ie. Rich also puts out books himself with his own Driftwood Editions and independent publisher producing limited editions of work that we find interesting worldwide. The latest book released by Driftwood is Carl Hickey's From the Top Deck of the Bus. Rich is going to talk about that and the next Driftwood release early on in our conversation. This conversation is a long one, over 80 minutes, as Rich talks about his journey from being not too interested in school to finding a community and a career in the skate parks around Ireland and eventually further afield. How he came to portraiture and how you need to really, really want it to make a living in photography. Rich Gilligan is going to be appearing at Another Love Story, which returns to the grounds of beautiful Killian Manor in County Meath on August 18th to 20th. Rich will be in conversation with the artist Fergal Brennan. It's such a great festival with loads of other talks on over the weekend with the likes of Brian Cross, aka B+, and Donald Fallon of Three Castles Burning Podcast, and music from, I'll only name a couple, God Knows, Lisa Hannigan and Martin Hayes, plus, of course, killer DJs, including Keanu Quavon, Donald Deneen, Claire Beck, and my name is John. Oh, it's going to be so good. Tickets are still available, so if you can, just go to another love story. You won't regret it. Here's Rich Gilligan on The Point of Everything. Let's start with Driftwood Editions. You say that you started it as a way to publish your own work without having to go down the traditional route of working with with an established publisher or distributor. Why is that important for you? I I actually started Driftwood in 2014 and then there was a big gap between the first and the second book. But the, 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 I guess the initial, the initial idea for it was I'd, I I had published my own um for years I'd pu- I'd made zines and I like before I'd ever had anything published um anywhere like I myself and a, a friend of mine Bruce had this um we had a zine called Killing Time that we made in like 2000 like ni- 99 2000 so that was just all like um skateboarding we were basically just skate nerds so it was like Dublin it was kind of mostly photos from Dublin but that was a zine I'd put together and we would sell it in a skate shop, G1 on O'Connell Street. And then I actually brought like a bunch of copies into Terror Records and somehow talked them into selling it. So so I, I really enjoyed the tactile kind of like hands-on. I kind of love like making things myself and 
that kind of like DIY approach to publishing. And again, it kind of goes back to lots of like my kind of early influences would be kind of, I guess, lots of things with punk and kind of like early hip hop. I love that kind of the, the basically the idea that like if something doesn't exist or you don't have a platform that you just create one. So I made zines for years and then I kind of I got really lucky where I actually published a book with um, a French publisher all about kind of landscape photographs of skate parks. And that was in 2011 or 12. And then, so that came out with a publisher in Paris called 1980 Editions, and they were so cool to work with. And that was super exciting because they had really good distribution and they kind of got the book kind of all over Europe and it got loads of press. And then I actually got like a second publishing deal through Prestel, who essentially are like the fine art architecture end of Random House. So that was kind of like, a, I guess it was kind of like doing a, doing an album with Rough Trade and then <laughs> you got asked to re-release it with like Sony or something. You know, it was like if they, were, they had a much bigger reach and they they were able to get distribution all over America and it kind of went like global in terms of like, I remember walking into like an Urban Outfitters on Broadway in New York and seeing like a stack of the books next to like a kind of Stussy stall for like Stussy clothing and just being like, whoa, how did, like, how did they get that there? So... Anyway, long story short, I'd, I'd experienced publishing in a very, very small way. And then I kind of had a taste of publishing with a really big publisher. And, and it actually was quite positive, the whole thing. And Prestel were cool to deal with. But, um, but it very much was that thing of like, you know, you have a few months to kind of like where they push it. But then it's kind of like that just moves on to the next season very, very quickly. And, and, and it wasn't like that I was kind of bitter about that. They actually were like so supportive and really cool to deal with but I just wanted to do something where I wasn't like where I was completely independent and where I could just publish um, what I wanted when I wanted and not be kind of under mad deadlines and having to worry about distribution I kind of love the idea of of just selling direct from a website and maybe picking like a few independent bookstores that sell it but so even though like it's all over the world and you're seeing it in all these cool places and stuff yeah you're kind of like uh. yeah no I, do you know what it's it, it i don't want to sound like i'm not grateful for all that stuff it was really exciting doing that but i also like part of doing setting up driftwood was i'd I'd had this body of work i'd made in like 2004 that was um it was called burnside and that and i i wanted i basically had made this book back then for like the final year of my degree which i studied in wales and but and I I made this book myself and it was kind of like there was things when I went back and looked at the edit I wanted to re rework it so actually at that time I just happened to be sharing a studio in Dublin with um, a really amazing graphic design studio called Post so Rob and Sean from Post I was like sitting across a desk from them for like two or three years just off Marion Square and I remember showing them the work and being like oh, I'd love to do I'd love to do a book with this. And then I had the idea for Driftwood and they were kind of like, oh, we can help you with the book design and identity and, and building a web shop. So we did that. And then then basically we ended up moving to New York for like six years. And I just kind of forgot about Driftwood. And then, oh, okay. It, or not even like, it wasn't like a conscious thing. I I always had plans where the plan when I set it up was that I could 
it was basically a way for me to publish my own work when I felt like I had smaller projects that I didn't need to kind of like, I kind of, I'm, I'm really guilty of like overthinking things or trying to like create some kind of like system where it's like, I can't publish this until I've done A, B and C. Whereas sometimes I would just have a, an idea for a project and be like, cool, I, I have this work done. I can put it together and get it out fast and not overthink it. So that was kind of like the main reason for Driftwood. And then secondly, I guess I was at a point work-wise where I was like, I really want to try and um, kind of like help spread the word about like up and coming work and and spe- not specifically just photography. I just had lots of friends who were doing work that was visual that I thought would work well kind of on paper. And, um, and that's how we did the second book with Carl Hickey. So or actually, no, that was the third book. The second one was was my own work that I actually I was about to we, we designed that and we kind of reworked everything and we were about to release the second book and go to print like a week before lockdown. Oh no! And then and then that kind of like that that happened, and I remember just like emailing Sean, just being like, "No, put the brakes on this. Let's just see." And then I actually was like, "You know what? This just wasn't meant to be." And in my head, I was like, "We just won't publish that." And then we ended up moving back to Ireland and like two, two years later, I was kind of, again, I was just digging through hard drives looking for something and I found that PDF and I was like, oh, this actually is really good. Yeah. Let's do Control it. Control P. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. And then we sent it. And the great thing with Driftwood is we do small editions. Like every book is kind of roughly around 200 to 300. So it doesn't cost a huge amount to produce the work. And, we, and we've worked with Plus Print, who are this great printer in Dublin. And Kieran there is always, he's really open to us kind of working in ways that maybe aren't like the most traditional ways of printing. So so we did the second book, which was my own work. And it was all made in this this city called Newburgh in the Hudson Valley in New York, where I'd had a studio for the last three years in America. And it felt great to get that out there. And then after that, um, I'd just been talking to this young painter from Dublin called Carl Hickey and I'd been a huge fan of Carl's work I I just discovered him on Instagram and we we knew each other loosely through skateboarding um he used to he'd be way younger than me but he's um I just loved his work and just felt like there was this energy to it that I I just was like cool like the like people who maybe are interested in my work would get this as well so that was like a natural progression and we talked and took a year to do but we just published that like last it's called on on the top of the bus or it's called from from um, the top deck of the bus yeah it's close, exactly it's close. from the top deck of the bus and um yeah i just um it just feels cool to be able to help a young artist like that not that he needs it like carl's kind of having a moment himself and his work's just really kind of raw and he has this he's just really skilled at what he does and and it's really original the way he approaches it but it's also I think what I loved about it is he's, it's not really precious either. He's kind of um, felt like there's links between the way I approach photography maybe to the way he, he paints. So the next book that um, that we're going to do with Driftwood Editions is with a photographer, Betty Wright. They're from Galway, but based in Berlin. And it's kind of a body of work all about, it's kind of all about skate scene um, where it's kind of primarily female and, and trans skaters in Berlin and in, in Galway but it's um it's cool because it's just like such a if for me like growing up in skateboarding when I did at that time it was so male dominated and such a kind of like it was just like lads but this is just kind of 
such a, an amazing um, new way of looking at it. And yeah, it gets thrown around a lot, but like the work's very inclusive, but also it's kind of like it just captures everything that's kind of weird and dangerous about skateboarding in such a beautiful way. Great. Do you still skate? Yeah. Yeah. Not not as much as I'd, I'd like to, but I kind of get out like generally once a week, once every two weeks. So there's, there's a crew of kind of older older heads who meet up in, in Greystones in the, the park there on Wednesday nights and I try and make it along the odd time and then where I live now I'm about half an hour away from another another park that's like um that's in Carlo that I go and skate a lot too so I keep talking about building a ramp in my garden <laughs> I was thinking like you know old, older skateboarders like keep the boards on the ground guys keep the wheels on the ground I know no? I know I mean I'm definitely like no it's funny I I've I've been skating more this year than I have in the past few years and I actually just realized how um how much I need to do it even though I'm getting like I'm in my early 40s it's not like it's definitely not as easy as it used to be but I but it's even just for as a kind of I know it sounds kind of corny or whatever but it's almost like it's like meditation or something for me it's it's a way that I can completely zone out and it's it's just something I really really enjoy so I find it um I can't imagine not doing it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, maybe we'll come back to the skateboarding, but just thinking about the books and Driftwood, like why is it important for a photographer or an artist or or anybody to have their stuff published and put into a book? Like, I mean, just from a journalistic point of view, I always prefer seeing my name in print in the newspaper or in the magazine or something as opposed to just like, Oh yeah, there it is on the link on online and it's kind of gone. Is it the same thing for you? Yeah, I think it's like, I mean, I think it's probably a generational thing where I guess oh, I was, do you think, well, I don't know. I think I was lucky enough to come up in, in the tail end of like print publication, actually having budgets to pay mm. um, photographers and writers it kind of properly. Um, don't get me wrong, it was still... But like, I wasn't like earning loads of money, but I would have definitely experienced like, I mean, I lived in London 2005 to 2006 and I worked for kind of two major European skateboard magazines and, and it was amazing. They, they had like, they'd proper budgets and they would just give me boxes of film and I would head off to like shoot like a contest or an interview in Barcelona or in. France somewhere and it was just I kind of just thought that was normal and then I'd come back and they had like this deal with this lab that would process all the film really well and make handprints and then they would like scan these handprints for layouts and I had a run of a few years where I just was like yeah this is just normal and then then that just all completely dropped out like kind of in the same way with, with music in terms of I think just when lots of things shifted online people just stopped buying print the way that people stop buying cds it's just like a natural inevitable progression but um but in terms of books specifically i'm like i just love engaging with photography through um true books and and true kind of like the idea of like creating an artifact of something that that kind of lives beyond just like a post or or something online like not that those things just like evaporate but it's um there's something about like the physicality of you know like smelling inky paper and and getting being able to like go through specifically like with art books I think the idea of creating a rhythm and and like creating a kind of 
the way you work a sequence through a book to me that's kind of the same way as like listening to a really good record you know that there's ways to kind of like bring the the viewer on a journey that i think you can't do um digitally i think that can only exist in a physical form um and i just love books i've like yeah i've got a it's a bit of a problem (laughs) It's uh, it only becomes a problem, I think, when you're moving house. And Absolutely, you've got boxes and boxes of them, and you're like, yeah. Oh. No, it's it's been really nice because now that we're we we live in Wicklow now, and I kind of have my my own studio for the first time in a in a long time, and I actually for years had like boxes of books scattered around different attics in Dublin. Oh, yeah. So in some friends' houses and my parents and my aunts, there was just like boxes and boxes of photography books and. And I actually have them all in one place now. So that's that's cool. It's like my own little mini library. And are you working yourself on a book? Do you have like an idea in mind for your next book of photography? And when you are thinking of like a book, do you have to have the idea beforehand? Or is it just kind of like looking at all your files on the computer and being like, oh, I think these all kind of work together? Yeah, it's like usually I've been quite traditional in my approach in terms of like I'd be quite specific about like this is a project and this is when I'm going to start it and this is when I'm going to hopefully end it and and as as I get closer to the end of it it becomes very clear the parts that maybe are missing so I start to kind of like fill in the gaps um with a particular story but I'm actually I'm working on a new book that's for it's for an exhibition that's happening in early 2025 so that feels like ages away. Oh, yeah, wow. but yeah, but it's actually not that long away. <laughs> but it's but with that, it's um, this will probably all completely change by the time the show comes around. But but for that, it it's been a lot of um, I'm I'm working through archives of of my own work. So there's a huge amount of things that I shot and things I worked on that I, for whatever reasons, that like I just was probably so broke at the time or just. You know, there was lots of things I would have photographed um, specifically within skateboarding where I would have like shot all these pictures, but just kind of like gone through the eggs and picked whichever image I thought looked best to send to a magazine. But there's so many kind of portraits and other fragments of things that would have happened surrounding maybe like photographing one particular trick that now I'm actually way more interested in in that side of it than the actual like skate photo, if that makes sense. So, the, so there's lots of work that's kind of, I kind of think the book's going to be a mix of, of new work with all this older on-scene work that I think ultimately kind of can all work together because I guess it, hopefully it all has my own, it has like a clear voice. And, and I like the idea of, of going back and re-examining things I might have shot like 20 years ago that I would have completely dismissed. But now I look at them and I'm like, wow, these are actually, these really kind of like personal, like just fragments of time or, or like moments where things happened that seemed like they were just so every day at that time, but they feel like they've got a whole different energy behind them now because of just because of the passing of time and I'm probably my own. Um, I probably would edit things completely differently now than I would have then. So, so it's, it's a fine line. Like I'm always a bit, a little bit wary when someone says, Oh, I'm, Digging into the archives and doing yeah. old work, I'm like, are you just being lazy, fucker? Like, <laughs> do you not like? Do you just not want to make new work? So it's definitely, hopefully, not going to be that. But I think it'll be a, a, like mixing newer ideas with this kind of archive that exists there, because 
the archive to me, a lot of it's just completely new because I never really properly looked at it until now. So. It just kind of builds up without you even realizing. Yeah, and, and a lot of that's just because a lot of it's just shot on film. So I just have all these boxes of negatives that like I didn't even make contact sheets of back in the day. They're just like negs that I would just look at on a light box and kind of randomly pick things. So I'm just trying to like put a, I just have to put a huge amount of time into like digitizing these analog archives I have. Again, it's the and physical. Yeah. And it's yeah, exactly. Love of it. And, and it's cool that it feels like the time feels right to kind of do that. But um. But in terms of like being able to give you a soundbite for like what's to work about, I, I'm still not fully there yet. You have plenty of time. But yeah, I've got loads, 80, 80 of, I've got loads of time. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so that's that's the that's the next book, hopefully. I think a lot of it's going to be about kind of um, it's going to be a mix of like not I don't I actually don't want to say too much about it because it course, will change. Yeah. But I think a lot of it's going to be about like f- friendship and how how friendships form and um, and just how these kind of quite often there's these kind of times in your life or like these fleeting moments that seem at the time like they're not really that important and they probably aren't but how just over time these things can just become um way more kind of meaningful as as time passes so yeah so yeah that that's kind of where i'm imagining like the skate park back in like the turn of the century and that when you're just wasting hours kind of thing there that's kind of where friendships uh are built yeah i mean and it's funny so so much of that stuff is not even a lot of that stuff doesn't even happen when you're actually skating it was it was just such a small at that time specifically in ireland it was such a small tiny community of people that were interested in this thing that was kind of like just it was just not the norm but you know you would travel stupid like you would like to be like 10 people traveling to cork to to skate like a really terrible setup in a ballroom with like a waxed polished floor just because that was the only ramp in the whole country do you know like and it was and and loving it absolutely loving it or driving like all the way to limerick because you'd heard a rumor that there was some like cement factory that had like a massive full pipe that you could maybe break in and skate (laughs) and then getting there and realizing the factory closed down two years ago but it was still like you would still go in these kind of epic like adventures just kind of searching out these mythical places that sometimes existed and sometimes didn't but but a lot of the I guess just like so much of it was about even just the idea that something might exist and it would be the friendships that were formed during those kind of um those adventures in a kind of like a really in like a really innocent way it's kind of almost like uh now you just like google street map <laughs> you know or just check if something exists or there's like a skate park almost in every second town now. well that's that's the truth as it's well like you kids don't know how lucky you got it i know i don't want to be that guy but i do have moments where like sometimes i'll you know i'll be skating somewhere and, and i actually will just hear like a bunch of younger like kids <laughs> hanging out and they'll just be like oh this place is so shit and and i kind of have to catch myself where i'm just like i want to just be like listen like this is amazing like 20 years ago there was nothing like we used to travel to australia and to like mainland europe and even like travel to like some weird like part of like the north of england just because it had a damp warehouse with a bunch of ramps that you'd seen photos of you know because that was all that existed and um so you do sometimes want to be like look you've got it so good (laughs) but um but i I don't want to be that guy (laughs) where in dublin were you skating well where was there to skate in dublin um 
I mean, I, I grew up in Blanchestown, so I would have initially just skated kind of like what we'd call like street spots around Blanche. And that would have been just like car parks and school kind of um, kind of schoolyards or like basically anywhere there was like big flat kind of tarmac or, or smooth concrete. And then in Dublin, in like the early, early 90s, like 92, there was a skate park down in the Keys that opened for maybe a year. And that was on Sir John Rogerson's key. That was called Simon Skate Park. And that was like a huge, going there was like complete, like life-changing moment. That was like a, I suppose I was about 11. I think my dad would have dropped me in. And it was it was just this giant warehouse where I think like maybe the lads who ran it kind of half lived there. And sometimes it would be open and sometimes it wouldn't be. But it was just like this empty warehouse with like a giant half pipe, a kind of small mini ramp, and then just a few kind of quarter pipes and ledges. And and it was amazing. Like you'd go there on a Saturday and there'd be people from like Belfast, kind of Limerick, Cork, and then just all these kind of older heads from Dublin. And, and it kind of was a really, it wasn't like the most welcoming place at, at that time in like the early 90s. It was kind of cool and skateboarding to like, be a bit of a dick <laughs> so people weren't like high-fiving you or like teaching you how to drop in like it was kind of like this really like cool scene that was way too cool um to actually be cool but <laughs> but as an 11 year old I just was like oh this is amazing like you know even and, and I would go there on my own and I, I kind of slowly got to know a few of the younger skaters there and and then actually there was a handful of people within that kind of older scene who actually were really really friendly and and in time became friends and um it was just really exciting but it was kind of also like terrifying <laughs> and like really like in terms of lo-fi it was just this kind of grim damp warehouse with like i don't know like a stereo playing bad hip-hop in the corner and two lads skinning up behind the back of a, a ramp and it was yeah. just it kind of felt like dangerous as well and i loved that it was definitely like the everyone here is like total misfit and and somehow I kind of fit in to all this weirdness in um I don't know how, but it just felt like uh, this is these are my people. <laughs> and so it just sounds like it just grows from there. As like sorry, but you know, you just keep rolling along. It's just like uh suddenly you want to start documenting it. Yeah. I think for, I mean I, I was lucky that I was of of an age where you know, I would have been like eleven. And thankfully, my my mom and dad were very supportive. Like they would drop me in there to that park specifically on like a Saturday or Sunday morning, and then just like sitting, sitting in the car for hours reading the paper while I was in there skating. And and then when I was about thirteen, you know, I, I was allowed to come into the city on my own, and that's when I would have start going into like a skate shop. And you kind of like this is like before mobile phones, so you would just go into the city, go to like skate shop or specifically like there was three or four kind of like skate spots in Dublin so there was like the Bank of Ireland on Baggett Street the Central Bank obviously on Dame Street and then a few other places but you would kind of go sometimes and just like lurk in these places until someone else turned up and they were skating and then you'd kind of like oh okay then you would kind of go skate the city with them for the day you're not going to start skating on your own well no I I mean you would but you just kind of be like I don't know, it's just kind of weird, like spider sense where you just hear like a rattle of like wheels around the corner. You'd be like, oh, there's someone here. And then like, and that's when you kind of would create these friendships with people. And and it was, for me, it was amazing because it was like me getting out of like, just like suburban Dublin, where I was meeting kids from all over Dublin, from 
it's like so many different backgrounds and it sounds so mad but like it was like I was meeting people with like really different accents <laughs> like you know it was kind of like posh kids from like the south side and then there was like other kids coming in from like swords and like there was just pe- like such a mix of like but everyone kind of had this common bond it was really really liberating and just so exciting so now I am um, I kind of look back on that so fondly that it was a time where like I kind of was finding my own tribe I know that sounds kind of weird but it, it was like such a tight-knit community that I'm really glad that I got to experience that in a way that wasn't like online or you know like it was it was kind of like you didn't even know about like if a new skate spot appeared like it was all word of mouth or you'd be hanging out with someone and they'd be like oh there's a new um have you been to like Wood Key to like the new Dublin Civic offices there's like there's a really good ledge you can skate at the front of that and you'd be like no way and just kind of tearing around the city just kind of trying to avoid trouble but inevitably getting caught up in trouble at times as well was it just skating that you're interested in or was it almost a more general american influence just like the hip-hop like the punk was that all that all just comes through i'm guessing as you're getting into your teens and late teens yeah i mean that was there's no denying like that was definitely part of it i think the allure of like lots of the skate magazines i would have kind of religiously kind of gone into easton's and like flicked through every month it was kind of like just such a such a contrast to my surroundings to look at these the photographs like specifically in these magazines it was just like um just like blue skies and you know ev- everything about it was so different to my environment that you couldn't help but be like oh my god like this is like this is just fascinating so um so i don't know i think i was as as drawn to like the culture that surrounded the actual skating in terms of like the clothes people wore, like the music that was in videos or the music that was in these magazines. I kind of was like so nerdy about if I'd read about something and it was like, oh, there's this. I don't don't even know what it was, but like it was kind of like the culture that surrounded this thing was just so different to everything I knew that I was just drawn to it all. So especially like Ireland at around that time, I'm guessing, you know, like yeah. drab and grey in comparison. No, totally. But but also kind of I look back and realise it was actually just such an exciting time here as well. You know, it was... Um, in terms of... Just that like it was... You could kind of get away with stuff the way <laughs> you can't now. You know, like it was kind of... I don't know now, do like 13-year-olds just get on the bus and go into the city with like two pounds and a backpack with like... I don't know, like a bottle of TK red lemonade. And that's you for the day, you know, just gone and and just meeting. And, and also to hanging out. A lot of it was like you were hanging out with people who weren't necessarily in your same age group. So like I ended up, I would have ended up hanging out with people who were maybe like four or five years older than me. And, and like, that's not a huge amount of time. But when you're 14, 15, someone who's like 19 or 20, who's kind of taking you under their wing and bringing you in a car, like even going in a car, with like some older skaters to skate some spot in Stillorgan or wherever you're like this is this is amazing like this is so I don't know just felt like really um just so exciting and so is it just a case of you just want to start documenting this and get some stuff published in the magazines does it all happen kind of naturally yeah I mean over that decade maybe yeah no it would have been like I mean trying to link when photography came into it was I think when I like the first time I ever would have bought like skate magazines 
I definitely like completely dissected the whole magazine and would have like cut up parts of it and just plastered my bedroom wall with this collage of skate photos but then would have only realized years later that like oh like half those photos on the wall were pictures taken by like Spike Jones who was like a skate photographer at that time and you know things like that that I had no idea at the time but I was like just drawn to this like I guess the um the visual side of it it was like I mean I ended up studying documentary photography and and for me like looking at skate like skate photos that's kind of how I viewed them as they're kind of like even though they're quite specific in terms of like there's definitely like kind of like unspoken rules within skate photography in the way that aesthetically people would photograph things to look a certain way or people would shoot with fisheye lenses and and use flashes to kind of like create like drama within basically trying to make a trick look as impressive or as scary as possible like I was drawn to that straight away I didn't understand it or understand why but um but as soon as I was like looking at mags I kind of was like oh yeah like someone I think it was the same with like albums like album artwork and skate magazines were how I got into photography like I used to go through like with CDs I would go through like meticulously through every CD I'd have or, or CD I'd come into contact with and look at you know it was the first time I ever would have like thought about like oh like someone designed this like there's a graphic designer or there's an illustrator or there's a photographer who's created this image that somehow has to kind of like mirror this music that exists within this disc that lives inside this plastic container so it would have been like looking at photos through albums and then through skate magazines and then also like just skate videos like VHS skate videos that would have been copied and passed around I became really interested in the idea of like how are these things documented and and that's when I would have probably started like you know bringing my dad I used to like borrow my dad's point and shoot camera this little Olympus and bring that with me into town and like shoot 36 frames and then drop them off of the boots or whatever and get them back and be like there might be one picture that looked half decent and then that was kind of like oh wow this is this is really interesting and then and then I actually off my own back started going to like I can remember really clearly going to like the library near me in Blanchardstown and like getting out this like very like 1980s book and like how to take photographs so you know or like and then in that and then I think there was an article in Thrasher once or in some skate mag that was like if you want to take skate photos you need to buy what's called like an SLR camera so that and I was like oh okay cool and then I actually had a job for the summer and I saved up my money and and I bought an SLR and that's when I started to like try to take skate photos and and at that time I was really lucky that there was no literally no one else I think in the country was trying to take skate photos so because I slowly the pictures started to get like a little bit better I kind of had an in with loads of people so like the people who would have been the best skaters at that time I was able to kind of hang out with them because I was of some use to them because I could take photos <laughs> and and there's a half chance it might come out decent and then that kind of got momentum and I would have made zines and then people kind of would have become I suppose kind of aware of what, what I was doing and then and then I started to get work published in like an American skate mag and, and some English mags and then all of a sudden like it was kind of like the doors opened where 
people were like, cool, do you want to, like people, before I just would have been like, kind of like hanging around, like a bad smell, just trying to like shoot stuff on this, like quietly and, and not get in the way. And then as soon as I started to get work published, people would actually come to me and be like, oh, I have this idea for this photo I want to shoot. Can you come and shoot it? And I was, and I just was like, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I just took it from there. Before I forget to ask, what is your worst injury uh, that you've had while skating? Do you know, your worst I, injuries? Yeah. Okay, I just, there's a few. <laughs> I've been quite, I've actually, like touch wood, I've been quite lucky. Um, I've had quite a few concussions and that's, yeah. Yeah, I remember like probably one of the worst concussions was when I was living in Wales and we were like going out to shoot photos. It was it was with this guy, Lee Dainton, who was like one of the guys who had, was part of Dirty Sanchez, that MTV jackass. Oh, yeah. Thing. Yeah. So he ended up becoming a really close friend, but he had this company and they'd sponsored this skater, Pete Rigby, and we were going to shoot a photo with him, but we were just warming up, skating this like bowl. And I, I can't really remember it, but apparently, like I used to have a bit of a problem where is it a few, like a friend of mine, I remember him kind of saying to me, he was like, you know, like your, your skate photos are definitely getting better. Like, cause I, I was so bad for so long. Cause it's technically again, like pre-digital, it was such a kind of steep learning curve to kind of understand technically how to get like everything in focus to get your lighting right, to kind of freeze action in a certain way. It's quite like a specific technique to learn all that stuff. And, and shooting on film was so unforgiving. Like, you could, if you didn't get it right, like it was kind of like the picture was fucked. So it took you a long time to, to get your head around that. But I used to like, I used to have this problem where sometimes I would just keep skating and people would be like, oh, I think I want to shoot this. And I'd be like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll shoot it in a minute. I just want to land this trick. So I would like, remember a friend saying to me, he's like, you know, if you want to do this, like <laughs> you're going to need to stop skating so much. And it wasn't like I was that good, but I just loved it where I just was like, if there was a good session happening, I was like, oh, I just want to keep skating. But then I would like force myself to stop and then set up lights to shoot stuff. But um, but no, it definitely was like, um, I don't know. I, once I would started shooting and, and the work started to kind of get better, I started to become like addicted to that feeling of like, it nearly started to feel as good as like learning a new trick or, or doing something new. But to finish that story with Dainton, we were skating this bowl and I like was grinding around a corner and something happened where I like whipped out and then fell about like five or six feet back into it, but like completely like landed on my head, but like completely knocked myself out. And then he kind of ran down to me and apparently I was just like, I was, I was like proper, like out cold. And then I woke up and was like, whoa, we're like basically just like, what happened? Where are we? Like I could, like the last 10 minutes was like gone. So he was like, oh, we need to bring you to the hospital. So they like drove me to this hospital up in the valleys in in Wales. And um, and then we went to the hospital and they checked me and were like, yeah, you're fine. But then we, we ended up like finding this amazing handrail, like on, on the, like basically at the end, <laughs> oh, at the no. entrance of the hospital. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, no way we could we could shoot that. Like, Pete, do you think you could skate that? And he was like, yeah, yeah, cool. So it's just funny that like there was probably the same doctor who'd like seen me was like driving out to get a sandwich in their lunch break. And we'd like set up lights and we were shooting this outside this handrail up in the valleys in Wales. So. Oh, right. I thought you were going to say like you fell off that or no, something. No, 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 no. We, we got a really good, fo- we had got a photo that ended up running as like an ad for this board company. Wow. So, yeah. 
so like broken presuming a couple of broken bones do you know along i actually the way? i haven't oh like, again i've i've like my ankles are really bad my knees are bad i've like sprained ligaments because of yeah skating. like skating and i've kind of i've had stitches a few times but more from actually have stitches from like grip putting grip tape on a board or like cut half my thumb off with a stanley knife but but no i've been lucky where i haven't had like really bad breaks it's more just been concussions and like ankles and I, I had this weird thing where it like almost like a form of like stigmata on my left hand from just I just used to fall at the same place on my my palm so it would be this thing for like for years I can remember like my ma giving out to me because or like because there'd just be so much blood on the sheets all the time <laughs> so it's just like yeah we used to joke and call it like stigmata where like it was this never it was this like scab that never fully healed and then it would nearly be better and then i'd fall again fall in the again. same place but um how many concussions do you think I, I mean that was i've had two skating and then i had another one when i was just like a teenager messing on a swing where i like yeah just so i've had three bad concussions but not and it's just like in the past couple of years we hear so much more about them and I it's know. just every time i hear about them now i'm like oh my god this sounds like the worst yeah no it's it's thing. i definitely look back now and like I think at the time I thought it was kind of cool or funny or like, yeah, but yeah, blacked out. Yeah, I know, but um, I mean, maybe it explains a lot. But so skating is like your first big break in photography, learning like a steep learning curve. I'm guessing. And would you have been happy continuing in that sphere? Did you get kind of bored with it at some point? Yeah, I mean, I, you know what, it was maybe boredom is the wrong word. No, it's not. It actually kind of is exactly kind of what happened i i ended up um when i first got into photography like i wasn't really that into photography i just wanted to be like a skateboard photographer and then it was like i actually when i finished school i did this like small portfolio course and i was i think i was just super lucky that two of the tutors that were on that course they they kind of could see i was really into it I think they could see how much like energy I had and I was just probably like you know I just technically and like even like boring stuff like the history of photography I just wanted to know it all and and I think I really it's like a bit of a tangent but I really struggled in school attention wise like I I was never like I used to just think I was really lazy all the time because in school I just was I like I would just daydream and I and I did and I kind of feel like from quite an early age and I don't think this is necessarily a good thing but like I kind of knew from quite early on that everything that was being said to me about like if you don't get 500 points in your leaving or you don't do this like I kind of was like this doesn't apply to me like I kind of know what I'm going to do and it's going to be photography so I, and I and that was at like 16 I kind of knew that so I, I basically just stopped I mean I, I scraped by a leaving cert and then got into this portfolio course. And But once I got there, I was like, wait a minute, like all I have to do is like shoot film, process film, make prints, like read about photography, look at photo books. I was like, this is... Ding, ding. Yeah, like I, co I co actually couldn't believe it. I was like, and I was coming on the train from, I'll get like the Ross Lair train from Coomine in Blanchestown all the way out to... Dunleary here and then get the bus up the hill to Sally Noggin which is where the course was but that was like a two hour at that time like it was like a two hour commute but like I think I was like first person in and last person out every day for that year 
and and during that year those two tutors there they would have shown me like i mean there's like a few spe- like specific books one was like i saw the work of larry clark this book he made called tulsa for the first time and that was kind of like a it was like a a documentary kind of it was basically photographs of like people shooting drugs in Tulsa, Oklahoma in like the late 60s. So it was the first time I'd really seen um, like this darker side of life documented or the idea of someone just photographing the, the world around them and the people that they were surrounded with. And I was like, holy shit, like that's, you can just do that. And that was like this definite light bulb where light bulb moment where I'm like, okay, I could just photograph my friends and the things that I'm interested in and that can be art and that can be something that's really interesting, not just to me, but it can kind of have these universal themes. The idea of like documenting um, friendships and relationships and and kind of like, the, it doesn't have to be, up until that point, I just didn't get it. And, and that became this point where I was like, okay, I, I no longer just want to be a skateboard photographer. I, I want to be like a documentary photographer. And, and that was a huge turning point. So weirdly, that was at a point where like I started actually getting skate stuff published quite regularly and I was earning a small income from that and, and I got into this degree in, in Wales and I was studying documentary photography there and it was just like incredible access to dark rooms and like I just facilities wise, it was just next level in terms of what I'd been exposed to in Ireland and and then I was able to get like this really cheap bus up to London and started shooting photos there. So so I was at a point where like skate work was kind of taken off. And and actually there was there was a point at the end of like my first year in college where this new skate magazine called Kingpin had just started and I was like a regular contributor to that. And and they actually offered me like a full time position to which would have meant like dropping out of college, moving to London and just being like a staff skate photographer for Kingpin, which ultimately was like everything I dreamed of. And I remember having this moment where I was like, will I, won't I? Like I was going to drop out and I was going to move to London. And basically I didn't. And at the, and, and at the time I was like, it was a really hard decision to make because I was like, this is, and I was young, I was like 19, 20. And, um, and I remember being like, as soon as I made the decision to not do it, I felt really good about it. And then I really committed to like, kind of like being a really I really committed to like being a photographer that wasn't just a skate photographer and I worked my arse off for the last two years there but um but then the reality of like finishing college and then like working in a call center for a year oh okay I was I remember like sitting there just being like I was like I should have taken that job (laughs) but but actually I I know I I probably just would have got burnt out very quickly so actually, in retrospect, I think I made the the right choice. What what year is this? Like mid noughties? Yeah, this Early would have been like two thousand and two oh, okay. to two thousand and four around around then. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I went to college like two thousand and one to two thousand and four in Newport in South Wales. And so, what kind of documentary work did you start working on? Um, I think my first kind of big project that I felt really worked was um. It was a project with all these boy racers. So it was like this underground car park in a place called Cumbran in, in South Wales. And it's kind of like, kind of fairly rough suburb of Newport. And yeah, it was just all these kids that would like hang out in these car parks with like souped up, I don't know, Novas. And it was like huge bass bins in the boot. And it was, and a lot of them was just them kind of hanging around these car parks, 
like trying to talk to girls and smoking spliffs and and Not just too ca- different from the skate park. Well, actually, weirdly, I, I kind of I don't know. I kind of fit in. Well, not that I fit in, but there was one guy there. I think his name was Chunk was his nickname. And I got I got in with this guy and and I started just hanging out there. And he would pick me up from like my I was living in like Hall's residence and he would pick me up and bring me out. And I would take and then I would kind of take these like kind of naff photos of them just posing in front of their cars and then rattle off loads of test prints and bring them back the next night and give them out to everyone. And then I was kind of in with them. They were just kind of like, oh, this. And then like the whole Irish card where like they didn't really get me. They were like, who's this? Like, I didn't look like them. I didn't sound like them, but they kind of thought I was sound. So I was in. And, and <laughs> then the most I, important thing. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was. Um, and I remember doing that and, and I, I worked really hard on it for like maybe two or three months. And then I can remember so clearly like showing the work to one of the tutors there Um guy called Clive Landon who's an amazing photographer and kind of really helped me especially early on but I remember like sitting down with my box of prints and you know like starting to show him the work and I remember Clive just kind of saying something along the lines of he was like he was like right he was like you've you're really you're really doing this like you're really going for it and I remember that kind of validation I'd never really experienced that and I was like yeah I am like I'm 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 all in with this so that was kind of like some game changer in my head mentally. I was able to go, okay, cool. I can I can do this, and it doesn't just have to exist within skateboarding. I can meet people and I can connect through photography in in this way that um, is actually not that different to how I've done the skate stuff, but that it can it can exist in different realms, not just in this one specific place. And do you think that you needed someone else to kind of almost point out that yeah, you're going for it? Maybe, or did, or did you kind of maybe know? not. I think I kind of yeah. knew or like that I was like, not that I was like, I mean, I can look back on it now and be, I was really ambitious and I was really like headstrong as in, I was like, this is the kind of work I want to make. And and I, and I could see from very early on, it, without just going on and on about skateboarding, I could see that I was just really interested in the idea of like subcultures and, and, and the idea of photographing people and places that maybe we don't normally get to see you know that was something that i was really drawn to so whether that was boy racers in some car park in the valleys or whether it's kind of like i don't know photographing an an artist or a writer or someone in the place where they create their work that idea of being able to like use using photography as a way for me to get access to people and places and situations that i just found really interesting that was um that was for me like it was like this amazing like cloak of invisibility where like I had I could I could get access to all these places purely by having a camera around my neck. I started to realize that and, and understanding that so much of being a, a successful photographer isn't just about like all the technical stuff of like being able to like know like how your camera works and how lighting works. Like you have to know all that stuff, obviously, but so much of it is about like knowing how to navigate you know relationships with people and and how to push and pull where you know it's it's kind of such an intimate thing to let someone to allow you into their space to, and and to kind of basically earn that trust with people that was something that I started to realize that I kind of naturally was able to I could talk to people you know and I could kind of like figure out ways to find common ground and and then I just took it from there is ambition 
like an important thing to have can can you kind of spot it in like younger photographers who you're talking to like that you kind of have to want it whatever that kind of is yeah absolutely it's and and it, it's funny because i because i know from my own experience that like it's not even that you have to just want it to make it happen you have to really really want it you know it's and there's lots i've seen so many people not even just like younger photographers but other people who i would have kind of come up with as well like people whose work i am um, you can look at the work and you're like oh my god like this person's incredibly talented and they have like there's such a clear style to their work and not even just style but like there's such a kind of clear voice in what they do but um it's a kind of there's no guarantees at all with it it's a very and i can kind of see this now because i'm like 20 years into doing what i do and trying to like hone my craft and figure it all out but it's um it's a lot of work you know there's no and there's no guarantees at all with it so you have to be really like being a, being like an actual good photographer is just one piece in the puzzle of trying to make it all work i'm guessing you're a bad photographer for so long until it kind of clicks is yeah, it? yeah, kinda. Like yeah, but it. I mean, you can be. It's funny though, because like that's that's kind of viewing it in technical terms. Because I look back at some really really early work that I've that I've done that technically is really bad, but I kind of look at it and I'm like, oh, it's amazing because it's so in. There's like an innocence to it where, the, or there's an openness to it where I'm just completely immersed in experimentation and trying to f- figure something out. And there's a purity in that. Whereas like technically you're kind of so crap for so long and then something clicks. Do you know, like maybe it's the same as learning guitar or like yeah, someone that, who... That's what I kind of have Yeah, or if like maybe someone's producing music or they're making beats or they're do, or DJing or whatever, that you're kind of so crap for so long that it's that whole idea of like that concept of like you put in the 10,000 hours or whatever that is and then it kind of clicks and, you can, and then, then you can do it. But that's not really, that's only where it actually begins. Because once you can do it, it, that's such a small, that's a small part of it. Like, obviously, you need to be able to do that thing. But then you need to be able to bring that into the world and kind of talk to people in a way where they feel at ease with you doing this thing you can do. Because photography is... As in the subject. As in the subject. I mean, this is more specific to if your work is people-based. Obviously, it's different if, if your work's just landscape or still life. But in terms of being able to, like, turn up somewhere... And meet someone and and find common ground and engage with them in what might be a very very short period of time, but you want to walk away with with something that feels like it's a for me like it's such a weird thing to be going about like truth in photography. But what I'm always interested in is trying to kind of like approach portraiture in a way where I feel like I can photograph someone with their guard down, and sometimes that's really easy and sometimes it's really difficult. But they're, they're the kind of skills that you build up over time. And there's no shortcuts with that stuff. It's kind of like trial and error and sometimes things really not working and then sometimes things just click and it's very flowy and it just kind of happens. But um, but so much of that is, it, without getting like, I don't know how to explain it in a way that doesn't sound like really pretentious or boring, but like a lot of it's just about people skills. And, and being able to kind of talk to people and communicate with people in a very clear way where they very, very quickly, they understand or they, they basically feed off whatever energy you bring in 
to that situation where they're like, okay, like this person is not exploiting me or they're, they're not trying to like come at this with a certain angle. It's, it's about trust and it's about trying to like convince them in a very short period of time that you have their best interests kind of that that's in the forefront of your mind alongside also walking away with an image that I feel I'm happy with you know technically and also that it it feels like without being like an egomaniac that it's your work because you know because you can there's so many people you could photograph who are so recognizable that it, it's kind of like you want it to feel like even though it might be some face that people are really used to seeing you want it to feel like it's still somehow has like you know an imprint of of your craft on that without that ever taking over it's such a mad balancing act mm. it's, it's actually hard to explain i don't know if i'm making any sense <laughs> well i mean i guess portraiture is kind of what a lot of people would associate you most with did that start in skating as well that you're just taking portraits of the skaters or was there a moment where you decided that this is what you wanted to move into in photography yeah i, I guess it did start within within skateboarding but it would have been like without me even realizing it do you know and and sometimes it was hard it, sometimes when i look back i was because i confidence wise early on i didn't really know what i was doing so i actually when i look back through archives now i'm like i just wish i made way more portraits or, or photographed way more in between moments like but i at those times i kind of would have nearly been like unless it was a skate trick happening I was like, oh, they, I'm allowed to shoot that, but I can't like shoot that person when they're like walking around the corner, having a smoke or taking 10 minutes. I don't know. Or like just even someone like drinking a can of Coke. They're all like, they're all the things that I'm like, I wish I'd actually just documented that stuff more. But, um, but I would have naturally like through documentary photography become interested in like photographing, I guess, like just the everyday, like the, these little like banal moments that happen like that's true true learning about documentary photography I was like that's the stuff I want to shoot as well as like the action or the obvious stuff but then later on when I started to try and like get commissions and and get work published I I was very much like I want to do portraits and and that was that's what I got really really obsessed with then was portraiture and and to this day that I think that's like for me that's probably the most satisfying part of of what I do I, I still really I just get such a buzz from it from trying to trying to walk away with a portrait that kind of feels um like you nailed it and have you like do you know when you don't nail it yeah there's definitely times where you're unsure or a lot of it's kind of sometimes it, it just depends on does there's clearly sometimes where you're sent to photograph someone and, and from the second you walk into that room or you meet that person, you just know for whatever reason that they're, they're not in good form or this is like the fifth shoot they've done that day and they're just over it and they don't really want to be there. And that's when, weirdly, that's when like your experience kicks in where you kind of know, okay, like I can't, this this, this is not going to like work if I just like, if I try and like make this too technical or if I try and like overcomplicate it, we just need to keep this moving really fast. So sometimes you nearly learn these ways to like almost like distract someone out of their bad mood or they're not wanting to be there into a whole other way. And and a lot of that's just through finding common ground and true convert. So sometimes it's like you might meet someone and you might like have try and have like a conversation with them for 20 minutes and then shoot photos for two minutes 
and walk away with something that works amazing. Whereas other people, you can just tell it's not going to work like that. You just have to get straight into to photographing. And you kind of, sometimes you almost have to like photograph through the awkwardness to get to a point where it works. And and every every time it's different, there's no, there's never like a formula, do you know? And that's that's what keeps you on your toes. And I guess that's probably what keeps it interesting because it's never, it's never not a challenge, if that makes sense. Mm. Just because you've been at it for so long and have such a reputation for it as well. When when someone asks you to shoot a portrait, whether it's for a newspaper, a magazine or, or whatever, are you able to like say, this is what I need? I need a certain amount of time. I need like a certain, I have a certain process that I have to do regardless of like how big the person is that you're shooting. No, <laughs> is the like short answer. It's very, it depends. Sometimes there's loads of freedom and sometimes it's to do with time. Like sometimes timing is just your biggest enemy where like it's inevitable where if, if you are, if you're working with someone who's kind of generally like this, it really fluctuates. Like there's been times where, for example, I'd be like commissioned by the New York Times to go and photograph a, a writer and I would travel to a certain place and and that would kind of be that would be a given where, that you're kind of hanging out with the person for the day and they're kind of my kind of dream commissions where it's not like you've half an hour and you just have to be in and out you might you could turn up somewhere and you can, you'll have a cup of tea and maybe go for a walk and and then I'll explain to them what I'm looking for in terms of like and and basically the way I would do a lot of that stuff is the time that I would spend kind of engaging with that person is also me doing a recce for like okay like this room's good because that window's there and that light's gonna come in south that way but then the back garden has this really interesting tree and maybe that wallpaper's horrendous but it could work really well like it's kind of like so I, I can be talking to someone but at the same time almost like trying to map out the surroundings that we're in like what can work and and some people can't work like that like I, I work very I work fast like I, I'm kind of I think I work better when if things are overly planned and I know lots of photographers who are completely the opposite where like I kind of like to keep it loose and leave room for like happy accidents to happen because usually if I go into something with a very set plan like I'll I'll execute that but then something else happens or the light changes or someone moves a certain way and then you're like oh that's that's actually the thing that's really interesting and and it's leaving leaving it space for those things to happen so you can kind of respond and react to them. That's that's how I work. But a lot of the time, I'm saying this, that's like a dream scenario. Sometimes it's like, cool, you've got 10 minutes and we need a cover, a double spread and two more details. Oh, okay. Go for it. And you're like, again, you kind of, you figure it out. And then, and even though those moments can be very, very stressful and, and you have moments where it feels like it's completely gone arseways and it's all falling apart, Sometimes afterwards you look through the edit and you're like, wow, this is like, this just worked really well. And because you don't have time to overthink and you're just kind of totally, I guess, running on instinct and, and using your gut feeling to, to see what works. Sometimes that stuff's the best. It's it's weird. It's like a, yeah, it's it's such a balancing act. It's, but, but do yeah. you shoot in studios as well or is it just like... Ge- you want to shoot them in their own environment yeah, I, I kind of generally like shooting I guess what I'd call like environmental portraits so that's someone maybe within surroundings that relate to them or kind of in, in natural light out in the world but 
increasingly in the last few years I've I've worked in studio way more and and it's I actually really enjoy it as well it, it brings all these other challenges too because it's um it can very quickly become quite formula the way you or you can have a formula that works within a studio but there's something about things being stripped back to like you know it's like for years I would have been so dismissive of like work that was made in the studio because I kind of would have just linked it to being really commercial or something or like or like a very safe option but actually it's not it's like you look at the work of I mean is photographer Richard Avedon who like made all this work that was like kind of mostly just all against a white background but like it's so it becomes like it's like this hyper real moment where like every there's no hiding anything within that space so every body movement every gesture the way someone looks the way that like their eyes how far their eyes are open like everything becomes like so kind of um almost like under the microscope do you know it's almost like forensic in a way and i kind of love that challenge too sometimes that works amazing but but for the most part i like to photograph people like in the real world for want of a better <laughs> way i do you know i like or like in places that are that they have some kind of connection to. That's generally what I try and find with people. Have you been intimidated by people that you've been asked to shoot, like really famous people or like people you really admire? Is that something, maybe the first couple yeah. you are and that kind of goes away quickly? Yeah, no, to this day, there's, like, it's weird. I, I would get like, I've gotten way better at dealing with that side of it. But the first few times I would have like had to photograph someone who's like super famous or you know I it's it's weird because you're there and you're you're trying to like I'm almost trying to convince myself that they're not the person they are so that I can kind of just chill out and do <laughs> do my thing and it's and it's sometimes it's like you know sometimes you are totally like starstruck for want of a better word where you're like this is so weird that I'm here with this person and I know their entire back catalogue and I've watched every film they're in or sometimes it'll be like a writer or some or a musician. Like mostly I get, I kind of find more, it's nearly more like people I have a kind of personal connection with in terms of, as opposed to say like a really famous actor, if it's, if it's a musician who like, where I know their entire back catalogue inside out, I get more intimidated around someone like that just because I, I already feel like I know the person even though I've never met them before. And and I also just want to represent them in in a way where I'm like I want them to walk away feeling happy with it. You know, it's 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 a weird it's a weird one. But no, I I I used to get really intimidated when I would work with kind of high profile people or whatever you want to call it. But for the most part, like again, it's really cliche, but like people are just people. Yeah, they're and just they, like and, you and me. No, they kind of are. Yeah. And and the weird thing is like people always ask me like not always but like sometimes they're like oh it must be obviously it must be really easy when you're photographing like a high profile actor for example and I'm like actually it's the opposite because sometimes those people and especially those people who are nearly like like kind of top of their game in whatever they do like that they're really vulnerable people and and when they're not in character they sometimes they it's really uncomfortable for them so it's kind of like if you're photographing someone who's you know, not in a role or not in a character who's an actor, for example, if they don't have some place to go within that where it's just them, sometimes it, they're, they're the most difficult shoots because they just, it just makes their skin crawl where they're like, 
I don't fucking want to be here and it's mad awkward and you're trying to like make it work but again that's that's what you kind of that's where it's kind of sink or swim do you know and and generally you, you make it work but there are some times where people are like I've been really lucky I've never had any like nightmare drama stories but <laughs> there are times where you're in the middle of something and someone will just decide like no that's it we're done now and they'll kind of just walk and you're like oh okay like that's that's not ideal but um but that happens and you kind of have to respect that because there's they might this might have been their fourth shoot of the day and that's that's just the way it is but yeah but it's it's exciting and it's fun and I, and I still I definitely have had so many kind of like pinch me moments where I'm like how like how have I ended up being sent here to hang out with this person like whose work I've like just I just know inside out that they're the moments where I'm like this is so cool that I get to do this and they're they're the times when you're like wow I'm I'm so lucky and so grateful to be able to that this is my job basically great um I won't keep you too much longer because I know we've been talking for for a while but I suppose since it is an Irish music podcast and you've shot so many Irish musicians and artists let's talk about some of them I mean Conor O'Brien comes to mind with you you've shot him a good few times over the years yeah is he just like you say someone whose music you really admire yeah I mean I, I think villagers and kind of everything Connor's done is just um yeah it's like next level and and I remember I kind of knew Connor loosely through a friend of a friend and it was before I seen him perform actually at like the Dublin Fringe Festival he Kathy Davey was playing and Connor was like playing with her and then he did this solo thing in this in the Spiegel tent and I think it was even before Villagers was Villagers but I remember just being like holy shit like that's who what like what is that it was just really it was just so kind of visceral it was I think he was singing that song pieces like I can't really remember but anyway we ended up doing photos for like a, a magazine it was like a music magazine and and it was kind of mad just watching his journey where I remember like we were hanging out in this house out near Malahide and taking pictures and just kind of drinking tea and having the chats and I just felt very comfortable with Connor. he's just such a such a good person and like really really kind of like if anyone's like free of ego he's that doesn't really exist with him and but like incredibly talented and anyway I remember like he'd he'd released one EP and then I, I think I said to him like oh like what's like what's your kind of dream scenario now with this like would you do you want to get signed or and it's so mad that I remember him pretty clearly just saying to me like oh you know like dream scenario signed to like Domino Records and release an album with them and then just take it from there and and I remember being like wow that's that's and like I'd known Domino for years through just such an incredible back catalogue and and then it was mad like fast forward six months I was like driving through Chapel Lizard on the way out to my ma and the phone rang and it was like this woman Colleen from Domino in London she was like hi I'm I'm Colleen I'm calling from Domino Records I don't know if you know us and I was like yeah I'll just pull over and then she was like we've just signed them um, Connor O'Brien Villagers and we're working on album artwork and Connor's kind of we've tried to get him to come over here but he's quite adamant that he wants you to work with you for the artwork or or like for the first kind of press thing and I remember just being like no way that's so mad that like he'd 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 spoke about that and then and that then basically started I worked on the portraits for the first album 
becoming a jackal i think and then we kind of consistently worked on every album um on and off and yeah i just that they're those kind of long-term collaborations that i just love and i just kind of get on like we just get on really well and there's a very there's this kind of weird respect thing of like connor kind of lets you like it's not always like that but connor is very much like you do you do your thing and i'll do my thing and and it just kind of gels and works really well together but but there's lots of other people i've I've kind of felt that with too and i've I worked for a long time on and off with david kitt um what you've, is that you've released a brilliant album this year amazing this, album this year is so amazing good. so good and then like we've we've worked on some video stuff and another artwork for new jackson as well which i'm a huge fan of and again like david's one of those people who I was like a big, big fan for a long time. And again, he, he just kind of called me one day out of, completely out of the blue where he'd seen a, like a fashion thing I'd shot for this magazine, Mongrel, back like 2005 or whatever. And, and he'd seen something and was like, oh, how's it going? I got your number through my friend Ella. I'm just wondering, do you want to maybe work on some photography for this album? And I was kind of like, no way. Like, And, and I, again, like it's funny when you're asking me about like being starstruck there does I was nearly like more spun out on that than like meeting Will Ferrell to do like <laughs> a, a cover story for an Aer Lingus thing or whatever it's it's <laughs> funny but then Dave became a really we've become like lifelong friends and, and, and that's that's the other thing that I'm I'm really lucky about what I do too is like yeah like sometimes it's just work and you you meet people but quite often you, you kind of meet people that you click with and, and those kind of those encounters can end up turning into like these very like amazing friendships and and that's something that I just really love about it too is meeting kindred spirits and people where you kind of like um yeah you just kind of a, a whole kind of like journey and friendship can kind of expand from just maybe one chance encounter where you have to because you get to know someone pretty fast when you spend a day photographing them it's it's kind of like fast track to it either goes one way or the other yeah. but but generally it's it goes good and damien dempsey shot him uh around christmas time i think for totally dublin or yeah or it wasn't totally it was actually for the artwork for his play in the abbey oh okay okay but it was around that time and um yeah that was for tales from the holy well and i like, was looking at your instagram and you said uh that he can be an intimidating person yeah not i don't mean that when in you the, first meet him I think I mean more like physically he's like he's, he's a big he's a big he? man yeah. and um and again he's one of those people who like Damien Dempsey's music on a personal level is just something that has carried me carried me personally through kind of like lots of life's ups and downs and, and I think he's kind of like yeah he's this like he's like some mad how do you explain he's kind of almost like this like not like a preacher because that's the wrong way of putting it but he has this he has this energy about him that like he's like this shamanic kind of like legend and and I just really um I've been such a huge fan for such a long time that um getting to work with Damien on and off like we would cross paths every few years and I'm not trying to pretend that like he's my best mate or anything but like turning up to that job and stupid things like even just walking into the abbey and I was like I was like, oh, he remembers my name. Like, just even and being able to hang out and have the chats with him and and create that work together. Again, that was like, we shot that so fast. And that was just one of those things where you, I just love working with him because he's one of those people who has that 
amazing kind of rare ability where you just feel like someone's completely put their trust in you and and sometimes that's really scary but with him I just um I think because I'm such a fan and and I kind of feel this kind of connection to his music in such a strong way that I just want to kind of bring my A game and do do the best work I can but but yeah love love Damien's work and love working with him he's a legend and then more generally we were talking just before we recorded about you living in New York and Other Voices was always there and you'd always come back for Other Voices. That seems like it's a relationship that's just been there for years and that you you just love the experience of, of working with them. I'm guessing photography is such a, a personal one person thing, but Other Voices is a big team effort. Yeah, I'm big time. I mean, I, I'm so lucky that I, I mean, I, I randomly crossed paths with Aoife Woodlock from Other Voices like well over a decade ago and then she kind of put me in put me forward to work on on a, on the show in Dingle and and around that and kind of like I look back on that and again like that's one of those kind of dream commissions where ev- like everyone who works on that is just such an amazing um an amazing crew of people there and so much um just amazing access to incredible music every year and I just loved working on it and and it was one of those things when we did you know, I'd worked on it for maybe five years. And then when we moved to New York, in my head, I was like, all right, that's like, that's probably that. And then thankfully, they were able to figure out a way to to get me to come back. So like, even it was amazing where, you know, we couldn't always afford to fly home for Christmas when we were living over there. So sometimes it'd be like, like the first week in December every year, I knew I would just fly into Shannon. And there was times I wouldn't even tell anyone, like my folks or friends that I was back. I was just get into Shannon and then get from Shannon to Dingle shoot for like four days and then just bounce back and then be back in Brooklyn and just be like whoa that was like (laughs) when worlds collide it was always just but you would come back feeling like I don't know it was just like this amazing kind of like slice of home and and there was times when I was coming back doing it where it was like I might have been kind of homesick and in a way this was like the perfect medicine coming back to to work on other voices and and not just because of the musicians and like obviously it's about the music but it was also just those friendships with all the the crew and and the people who who make it all happen there they're just really really good people what's your favorite gig that you've seen in the church do you have a favorite oh there's so many i mean but in terms of like i think post lockdown the first like there was the year or was it in lockdown i think we're still in lockdown i think like there's been so many amazing like i, I remember been totally blown away with Reggie Snow. Um, I was a big fan, and and I and like and again, I I just remember being like, "Whoa, this is incredible!" And then there's all these kind of like, kind of more obvious things that you would um. I don't know. There's just so many, but also like pillow. I'd never really heard Pillow Queens before, and then I remember like seeing Pillow Queens play in the church, and I was just like, "Whoa, what is this?" Like this was it was. Again, I was like, this is just so good. And and I, it's kind of, there's always a few things with other voices where like before I had kids and I had more time to like do my research and be nerdy. When, whenever I'd get the lineup, I would kind of do a bit of a deep dive into who's playing. But this year, I remember I, I didn't have a clue who they were. And, <laughs> and, and I was just like, this is amazing. But in terms of like, um, I remember the performance that David Balfe did with For Those I Love. Oh yeah, wow. That was, um, and I think that was like, it was still lockdown 
it was locked down because there was only like seven or eight people in the church and it, it, the way he performs and, and again I hadn't I didn't know it was before the album had come out or anything but I remember like by the end of that performance everyone just kind of walking outside and just feeling completely moved and kind of like forever changed by that performance that was so moving and it was just this weird silence afterwards everyone was just like what the fuck like it was really powerful it's funny that you mentioned like the three acts that you mentioned are all Irish you know like I mean the there's loads more get, the, get yeah. the huge acts as well but it is the Irish stuff that does kind of but just like personally yeah I or maybe it, that's I don't know like the other weird things I remember like seeing Mogwai for example oh okay and I was like holy shit this was so amazing and, and so get like I'm guessing yeah no it was like <laughs> earplugs completely and um I'm probably like forgetting loads and loads of stuff. Yeah. But like also like actually the f- first time I saw Gilliband was in that church as well. And I was like, whoa, this is, this is amazing. So yeah, so many. I'm I'm forgetting loads. Lisa O'Neill as well. Oh my God. And Lancome. Oh, There's like, yeah, so much. But like, I think it, that like other voices without going on and on about it. It's just such a, I don't know. It's just like such an amazing kind of gathering of like, the immense talent that exists here you know it's it's amazing that that still exists so yeah and finally you're going to be at another love story this next week i think as people might be listening to this uh this podcast are you going to be sticking around for the weekend you're going to be chatting anyway yeah i'm yeah we're going on the saturday i think we might be staying the saturday night i'm actually not sure but we're definitely hanging out for the day and i'm doing a talk with fergal brennan who's an amazing artist, who's a really, really old friend. And then I'm going to stick around because um, Brian Cross, B+, plus, is also speaking, who's a photographer from Limerick based in LA, whose work I've, I've, I've known Brian's work for years and we've kind of become friendly, but he, um, he was a huge, huge inspiration for me um, as I was kind of finding my path. So going to hang around for his talk. And then, yeah, there's uh, Circa Richardson's playing. I really want to go see her. I'm, I'm a big fan and yeah we'll we'll hang out um i don't know if it'll be like a late night but we'll, we'll be there for us you say for, that now i know i know we're kind of contemplating whether i've got like two of a five-year-old and a 10-year-old so we're kind of we might bring them along but then we're also like maybe it'd be nice to just like have a night off so we'll see but e- either way my wife patria and me we're we're gonna go and hang out and take it all in Cool. Well, I look forward to seeing you there. And thanks for being so generous with your time and having the great chats this morning. Oh, thank you, Ons. It's a pleasure. It's a nice one. Mm-hmm.